Dose. My name is Bill Dykstra. Today is June 20th, and we commemorate St. Nicholas Cavasilis. St. Nicholas is awesome. He's one of my favorite saints, and I'm really excited to talk about him. Nicholas Cavasilis. He was born in Thessalonica in 1319. So yes, because this took place post-schism, he may be included in the canon of saints in the Eastern churches, yet not in the West. However, my dear Latin friends, fear not, because you guys use some of his writings in the readings of the Liturgy of the Hours. So you're going to get just as much out of today as anyone else would. Now, I'm going to speak a little personally for a second, again, because it is due to having read his writings that I appreciate the scene so much. You see, when I was coming of age and learning about prayer and how to have a spiritual life, the only thing available to me were very charismatic kind of life in the spirit forms of Christianity. It was very emotion-based, and it made me believe that my intuition was the voice of God. Whatever I was feeling or desired became the murmurings of Jesus. However, I'm glad to tell you, this is not the case. Now, no matter what age you are, young person or old person, you need to understand that your emotional life needs to be subject to your intellect, to your interior self. Now, I believe this, you know, understanding your your emotional life as spirituality, as the voice of God, is emotionally damaging. And it was for myself and other people who were raised in this milieu. Now, I know that this is not the case. I know that this is not a, a viable way to, to have a, a relationship with God. But knowing that my feelings weren't God was that that's only half the battle. How do you have a spiritual life? Nicholas Cabosilus answered this for me. The source of the spiritual life is through the sacraments. I would like to read you from his work on the life of Christ, where he talks about this idea at great length. In the sacred mysteries, then, we depict his burial and proclaim his death. By them we are begotten and formed, and wondrously united to the Savior. For they are the means by which Paul says, In him we live, and move, and have our being. Baptism confers being, and in short, existence according to Christ. It receives us when we are dead and corrupted, and first leads us into life. The anointing with chrism perfects him who has received new birth by infusing into him the energy that befits such a life. The Holy Eucharist preserves and continues this life and health, since the bread of life enables us to preserve that which has been acquired and to continue in life. It is therefore by this bread that we live and by the chrism that we are moved once we have received being from the baptismal washing. In this way we live in God. We remove our life from the visible world to that world which is not seen by exchanging, not the place, but the very life itself and its mode. It was not we ourselves who were moved towards God, nor did we ascend to him, but it was he who came and descended to us. It was not we who sought, but we who were the object of his seeking. The sheep did not seek for the shepherd, nor did the lost coin search for the master of the house. He It was who came to the earth 
and retrieved his own image, and he came to the place where the sheep was straying and lifted up and stopped it from straying. He did not remove us from here, but he made us heavenly while yet remaining on earth and imparted to us the heavenly life without leading up to heaven, but by bending heaven to us and bringing it down. As the prophet says, he bowed the heavens also and came down. Accordingly, though these sacred mysteries, as through the windows the Son of Righteousness enters this dark world, he puts to death the life which accords with this world, but raises up that which is above the world. The light of the world overcomes this world, which he affirms when he says, I have overcome the world, and introduces the abiding and immortal life into a mortal body, which is subject to change. When the sunlight enters a house, the lamp no longer attracts the sight of the onlookers, but the brightness of the sunlight overcomes it and dims it. Similarly, when in this life the brightness of the life to come enters through the mysteries and dwells in our soul, it overcomes the life which is in the flesh and the beauty of this world and conceals their brightness. This is the life which is in the spirit, which overcomes every desire of the flesh in accordance with Paul's word. Walk by the spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. This way the Lord traced by coming to us. This gate he opened by entering into the world. When he returned to the Father, he suffered it not to be closed, but from him he comes through it to sojourn among men, or rather, he is constantly present with us and, in fulfillment of those promises, is with us forever. Therefore, as the patriarch said, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. By it not only the angels descended to earth, for they are present with each one who is being initiated, but even the very Lord of the angels himself. Accordingly, when he prefigured, as by a picture, our own baptism, the Savior himself, as he suffered himself to undergo the baptism of John, opened up heaven and showed that this is the means by which we shall see the heavenly place. Indeed, the words in which he declared that he who has not been baptized will not be able to enter into life hint that this washing is some kind of entrance and gate. Open to me the gates of righteousness, says David, moved by desire that these gates should be opened. That which many prophets and kings desired to see is this, that the artificer of those doors should come to earth. Therefore David states, that were he to enter into the, this entrance and go through these gates, he would render thanks to God, who has breached the wall. For he says, I will go into them and give thanks unto the Lord, since it is from these gates that he would be able to obtain to the most perfect knowledge of the goodness and loving kindness of God towards our race. What then could be a greater proof of kindness and benevolence than that he who washes with water should set the soul free from uncleanliness, or that he by anointing it with chrism should grant it to reign in the heavenly kingdom, or that he, as the host of the banquet, should provide his own body and blood? Moreover, that men should become gods and sons of God, and that our nature should be honored with God's honor, and that dust should be raised to such height 
of glory as to become equal to the honor and dignity to the divine nature. This, then, is the excellence of God's work, which has beclouded the very heavens. It has surpassed, I think, every creature and concealed every other work of God by excelling it in greatness and beauty. All of God's works, be they ever so many, so beautiful and so great, are less than the Creator's wisdom and skill, so that He could well have brought forward things yet more beautiful and yet greater than those which already exist, such as we should not be able to express. But were it possible for a work of God to take place so beautiful, so great, that it would vie with that wisdom and power, and almost match his infinity, and like a footprint indicate the whole wholeness, whole greatness of his divine goodness, I should regard this to be superior to the others. If then God's work always consists in imparting goodness, it is for this end that he does all things. This is the goal both of past events and of things which may happen in time to come, since the good has been poured forth and spread abroad. By doing this, God, by doing this, God would impart the greatest good of all. Greater than this, he could not give, and this would be the greatest and fairest work of his goodness and his utmost limit of his kindness. Such then is the work of that dispensation which was wrought for mankind. In this case, God did not merely impart whatever was good for human nature and keep most for himself, but he bestowed all the fullness of his Godhead, all the richness of his very nature. It was for this reason that Paul said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is eminently revealed. For if there is any virtue and righteousness of God, it would consist in bountifully imparting to all his own excellence in, in, in sharing his blessedness. For this reason, the most sacred mysteries may fittingly be called gates of righteousness. For it is God's supreme loving kindness and goodness towards mankind, which is the divine virtue of, and righteousness, which has provided us with these entrances into heaven. I hope you enjoyed that. That was again from Nicholas Cabasilas's work, the life in Christ. Thank you very much for listening. This has been your daily dose of Agios. Saint Nicholas Cabasilas, 